The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Today is going to be another passage on service, although it's not going to be quite um, as direct and an exploration of service per se, as much as I think the heart underneath it. And so um, that's what we want to look at today. Last week, we looked at the kind of heart that God wants us to have in our service to him by looking at this construction of this tabernacle in Exodus. And so uh, what I said last week, and I'm going to really reinforce today, is this idea that God looks at the heart. That's what he is intensely concerned about is our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, we looked at that last week. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Um, Just can't reinforce that message enough that what God wants from us is not just behavior modification. He's after our hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay? And so, just very briefly, for, by way of review, uh, in that message last week, we uh, basically looked at that idea that God desires willing service from his people. And so as Moses was gathering the materials, the skilled laborers, and everything that was needed to build the tabernacle, these phrases just keep popping up uh, over and over again in Exodus 35, who were of a willing heart, whose hearts stirred within them, whose spirits aroused them, this, this constant repeated message that it was this joyful, voluntary service out of which that tabernacle was built. And that is so important because it is precisely that willingness, the joyfulness out of the service that shows the worth of the God that we worship. That is not done grudgingly out of obligation, but out of joy and surrender to him. And then the second thing we looked at last week is that God supplies us with the resources we need to serve him. We saw how all that jewelry and the the precious gems and all of that, the gold, And silver were actually plundered from the Egyptians. That God gave all of these things to them. So this message was very clear that um, whatever God is asking of us, he provides to us. And so in that same way, if we're going to serve others with the right heart, the place for us to start is also what have we received first from God before we even think about what we can give to others as a service that we do for him, okay? Um, toward the end of that message, I sort of try to wrap it all up by looking at just this, this uh, theme that runs throughout the Old and New Testaments of God seeking to make a dwelling place among his people, okay? It's always been God's desire to build a house to dwell with his people. And so it started with a tabernacle, And then it would transition to the temple. Um, New Testament scholar Peter Enns basically describes the tabernacle as heaven touching earth. Heaven touching earth. This is God revealing his glory and his presence to the world through this house that bears his name. And that's what the tabernacle did. 
And then later when the people no, no longer became nomadic but entered the promised land and settled into Jerusalem, the temple replaced the tabernacle. And then in the Gospels we're told that Jesus became that temple. In other words, all of the fullness of God, all of his glory displayed to the world to see became focused not on a building but on a person, the very son of God himself. And that's why Jesus declares, I am the temple of God. But then as we saw last week, uh, Jesus ascends to heaven. And after Jesus ascended, uh, the church is birthed. And we're told that the church becomes the dwelling place of God. That's you and I. When the Holy Spirit enters us, we become that manifestation of God's glory to the world as a witness of his presence here on earth. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 to 22, the apostle Paul writes, in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay? What people see in us, in our worship, in our service, becomes God's glory on display to this world. Well, this week I do want to look at another passage on serving that comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we'd invite you to turn to Matthew 20. Uh, the text is that I want to read actually starts in verse 17, although the focus is going to be primarily on verses 20 to 28. Okay? Matthew 20, verse 17, it starts like this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to understanding the words of Christ, your son, and help us to grapple with the depth of the change that you call forth from your disciples and to wrestle with what it means to experience that new life in us that would lead us to become the kind of servants that you will us to be. Open our eyes to see your son on the cross 
and understanding what that cross represents for the transformation that we long for. For we pray all of this in his name. Amen. You know, um, I think you could say that just pretty much all movies can be divided into one of two categories. Okay? Um, the first is what we could call a plot-driven movie. A plot-driven movie. Now, with a plot-driven movie, the story is the most important element. Okay? Um, what is the conflict? What happens next? How is all of this going to get resolved? And how is it all going to end? Okay? Plot is everything in a plot-driven movie. Um, Inception, if any of you watched that movie, is an example of a plot-driven movie. Um, can I ask how many of you have seen Inception? Just to get a sense. Okay, almost all of you, actually. Um, so you know the story, right? It's a story about a group of people who travel deep into the subconscious mind of others in order to enter their dreams and basically to steal their secrets, right? And the truth is, when you watch Inception, you barely even care who the characters are in the movie. Does, in fact, does anybody remember the character's name that Leonardo DiCaprio played? I bet you nobody in this room remembers that character's name, right? Um, instead, what it is with a plot-driven movie is you get totally sucked into the story, moving from basically, in the case of Inception, one mind-blowing a scene after another as you're entering the dreams of these people and trying to separate dreams from reality, okay? That's a plot-driven movie. Uh, the Star Wars series and Marvel comic movies, those are also plot-driven movies. The more explosions, the better, right? Um, but then there are what we can call character-driven movies. Character-driven movies. These are movies that aren't as interested in the actions of the plot per se as much as what they care about is how the characters are transformed and grow over the course of the story. That's their primary concern. And a good example of a character-driven movie is the movie Castaway. Okay. How many of you have seen Castaway? Can you see that? Okay, again, these are movie buffs here. Huh? You, guys, you guys apparently get out a lot huh, and watch movies. So in Castaway, Tom Hanks plays this guy named Chuck Nolan, who is an engineer who works for FedEx, right? And his plane goes down in a storm. And he survives the plane crash. He's the lone survivor of this plane crash. But then he survives only to be stranded for four years on this uninhabited island in the South Pacific. And I don't think any of us could really describe the plot of Castaway as riveting, okay? Um, they <laughs> Zemeckis literally spends seven minutes, seven agonizing minutes, watching Tom Hanks try to start a fire, Okay? And then he spends five minutes on this toothache, okay? And he tries to, that was one of the horrible scenes in a movie, all right? As he deals with this toothache. Um, but this is basically how this movie kind of ponders along. But what makes Castaway such a compelling movie is the profound transformation that Nolan goes through on this deserted island. 
We don't care so much about starting this fire or dealing with the toothache as much as we're watching what happens to a human being who lives all by himself for four years on a deserted island. And it's fascinating what happens to him. And the question is this, why are we so fascinated with character-driven movies? You know, um, I think it's because the truth is all of us hunger for transformation in our own lives, don't we? We all want to believe that the events that we're experiencing in our own story actually have meaning, that our own life experiences are changing us for the better. And so I think that's why we're drawn to movies like that is because it actually gives us hope. It inspires us to think that whatever we face, it can affect us and change us and make us to be better people. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. The, the transformation that God wills in each one of us. And the focal point that I want to bring to that is the honest inward look. The courageous look inwardly at who we really are if that transformation is really going to occur. And I want to do it through the story that we find in Matthew chapter 20. The story begins with Jesus in verses 17 to 19 delivering this horrible news that informs the disciples that they are now on their way to the final journey to Jerusalem where he is basically going there to die, to be tortured and put to death, crucified on a Roman cross. And then right after that, in verses 20 to 21, right after Jesus says those words, this mother of Zebedee's sons, which would be James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, make a request that is utterly tone deaf and inappropriate in light of the somber news that Jesus just gave them of his own death. James and John's mother basically asks for her sons to be given the two seats of honor to the left and to the right of Jesus. He says, when you come to reign in your kingdom, let my sons sit at both of your sides. And I think everyone who would have witnessed Mrs. Zebedee do that that day would have been embarrassed for her, right? At how crass, and self-serving her request was, especially after Jesus just announced his death. But here is the scary thing. I don't think she had a clue how embarrassing what she did was that day. I think she was clueless. Otherwise, she wouldn't have done it. And so where I want to start with the message today is by saying this simply, is that sin wears many disguises and blinds us from seeing our sinfulness for what it really is. Okay. I think the truth is, for James and John's mother, in her own mind, I think she must have been thinking something like, I'm only acting as a selfless and loving mother. And I don't know, maybe some of you mothers out here feel the same way. Oh, I understand her. You know? That's just a mother's heart. Like you men, you wouldn't understand, you know? But that's a mother's heart for her kids, right? I mean, I think she would have been thinking something like, well, if it was for myself, of course, I would never ask 
something like that of Jesus. But there isn't anything I wouldn't do for my boys. And what deserving boys they are. They're good boys, Jesus. They'll do really well on your left and on your right. I raised them well, right? I think the truth is, there's just so many ways that we can justify a request like hers. And I think that's what she did. So that she wouldn't be confronted with the raw sin of what she was really asking that day and the pride that it revealed. It exposed the self-centeredness. And you know, just in case you think that James and John were just dragging their feet behind their mom, oh, ma, can you not do it? You, you got to read on, okay? I imagine them actually sheepishly standing behind their mother while she does the dirty work for them. But what's interesting to me is this. When Jesus responds to their mother, he doesn't address her directly. Instead, he looks at their sons, <laughs> her sons, and talks to James and John and confronts them directly. In Matthew 20, verse 22, it says, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to whom? Not to her, to them. It's almost like he sees the conspiracy here, you know? Because I, I see what's going on here. And so he says, you don't know what you're asking of me. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they answer, we can't. The metaphor of the cup was used in the Old Testament to always pretty much describe the idea of suffering. Suffering, this cup of suffering or cup of judgment, okay? And so James and John would have clearly understood what Jesus was talking about. In other words, they would have known that Jesus was saying, can you really go through the suffering and rejection that I'm about to experience in Jerusalem? And it's like Peter who said to Jesus, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. James and John were confident that they would pass any test of faith that was put before them. You see, in our struggle to see ourselves accurately, almost all of us have a tendency to have an overinflated confidence in ourselves, right? That's part of the deception of us not seeing ourselves accurately. And so James and John go, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. We'll pass the test, whatever it is. I want to say this. Before we can experience the transformation offered to us, through the gospel. We need the courage and humility to honestly confess the depths of the sin that lies within our hearts. I think without this self-awareness of the depth of our sin, the truth is we, we don't even know what the good news of the gospel is, do we? Because we don't even understand what God is trying to save us from. There's a story in Luke 7 of Jesus entering the house of this Pharisee named Simon. And Simon treats Jesus with such contempt that he doesn't even offer him the common courtesy of a bowl so that he can wash his own feet. Because clearly, he's not going to offer one of his servants to wash his feet for him. And in that dinner party, this immoral woman enters. And she falls at the feet of Jesus, anointing his feet with this perfume and washing 
her feet with her tears and her hair. And it says in Luke 7, verse 40 to 47, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now when Jesus says that, He who has been forgiven little loves little. He's not telling Simon that some people have lived better lives. And so they require less mercy from God. They require less forgiveness, which is clearly what Simon thinks he is. He thinks he's in that boat, right? And Jesus is not saying that somehow you need less mercy from God. What he is saying is, Some people just think they need less mercy. And if you're in that camp, then you probably need a little Savior for your little sins. And so you love him very little. Because the truth is, in your own perspective, he hasn't done all that much for you. Because you haven't needed much from him. You're okay in your own righteousness. John Calvin says, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. What is the knowledge that you have of your own need of God this day? David Benner shares about his personal experience counseling a famous pastor who fell to public disgrace when it was revealed that he was having an affair with one of the church members that he was counseling. And then as more and more dirt was digged up, they discovered that he had also been misappropriating church funds for quite some time. And in the course of trying to counsel this fallen pastor, he writes about the tragedy of the life of a man who lived this lie that he couldn't even see himself. Benner writes, The self this pastor showed to the world was a public self he had crafted with great care, a false self of his own creation. Between this public self and his true experience lay an enormous chasm. Both that chasm and his inner experience lay largely outside his awareness. To truly know love, we must receive it in an undefended state, in the vulnerability of a just-as-I-am encounter. This man had never been able to allow himself this degree of vulnerability with anyone, not his wife, nor his children, nor his closest friends, and certainly not God. 
Not surprisingly then, his knowledge of himself was equally superficial. Listening to the things he told me about his life was like reading a throwaway paperback novel or watching a B-grade movie. The role he was playing lacked depth and reality. It was two-dimensional. As he told me about himself, he was describing someone he had been watching from a distance. The knowledge he had of this person was objective and remote. It had therefore no transformational value. It was simply his pitiful attempt to give flesh and bones reality to the falsity of his pretend self. The self he sought to project to the world was an illusion. Even after his crisis, this man had enormous difficulty being honest. His long-standing, deeply ingrained tendency to present a pretended, idealized self survived the dissolution of both his ministry and his marriage. It wasn't so much that he told lies as that he had lived them. What a tragic testimony, huh? And I think the saddest part of these words are those last two sentences. Even facing the crisis of a dissolved marriage and a lost ministry, Because of that lie, he couldn't give up the lie. And so the lie outlived his marriage and his ministry. Our story may not be as dramatic as this, but I think if you haven't come to that place in your own life where instead of looking down on someone like this, you can actually acknowledge, I share that same struggle. I do. To change and work on only what people see outwardly, the image that I manage. And avoid dealing with the much deeper war that wages within my heart. That is always the temptation of the sinful spirit. Matthew 20, 24 says, When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. The other disciples clearly saw the power play for what it was. James and John were making a move on Jesus. And they were filled with anger and indignation. But it wasn't a righteous indignation because somehow they were more righteous than them, that they were less power hungry than these two brothers. Because the truth is, the gospel records multiple times when all of the disciples, all 12 of them, were in these heated arguments about who was the greatest, right? So it was more like the indignation of a group of people who get mad because someone took the last piece of cake. And the truth is, everyone wants that last piece of cake. It's just this guy is the only one who has the nerve to take it, right? And so... James and John, their mother, the other disciples, the truth is, they were all in the same boat. In a way, you could say this. When Jesus came into their lives, everything changed, but in a way, by looking at the story, nothing had changed. Outwardly, it looked like a lot was going on, but what this story reveals is that inwardly in their hearts, not that much had changed from before they met Jesus. 
Because they were all still hungry for power. They were all driven by ego. They all wanted status. And so Jesus gathers all the disciples together and he tells them in verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. What Jesus is saying is, what's on display here with you guys? This is the way that the world operates. Everyone fighting to get ahead of others and using their positions of authority for personal gain. So these are the values of the world. And the implication is, and all of you are acting the same way. You guys are no different. So he gathers his disciples and he tells them in verse 26 to 28, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, in my kingdom, it doesn't work like this. Leadership means serving, and the higher you climb up in my kingdom, the more of a slave you become to others. You know, Pastor Daniel Doriani tells us, story of a time when he went to this restaurant to have a breakfast with a fellow pastor and they were served by this exceptional waitress named Amy who was just bubbly and helpful in every way just one of these waitresses that goes above and beyond and when the meal was done um, the check came and he put his credit card on top of the check and kind of absentmindedly, he had forgotten that this is one of those diners where you actually take care of the check at the register at the front of the restaurant. But before he could correct his mistake and grab his credit card, Amy had already come and grabbed the check and the credit card and brought it to the register herself to take care of the bill for him and run it through the register. And so when Amy got back, uh, he apologized to her, and with a big smile on her face, she simply said, uh, no problem at all. It was my pleasure to serve you. And what Doriani says is this. It's tempting. It's tempting to look at a story like this and say, you see that? That's what Jesus wants. He wants you to be like Amy. <laughs> That's what it means to be a Christian. But what Doriani says is the problem with this story is that Amy got a bigger-than-usual tip that day from us for that extra effort. And so what he says is, I don't know what her motivation was, really. Without being able to see Amy's heart, we don't know really what's going on on the inside, do we? The truth is, Amy may be the top earner at that restaurant, and she very likely is, right? She may earn more in tips than all the other waitresses combined because of her bubbly personality and her extra helpfulness. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Because here is this mother 
kneeling in what appears to be a posture of humility, doing this selfless act for her sons. And here are the sons, James and John, standing behind her as she does the dirty work. And here are the other disciples, the ten remaining, scandalized by it, smug in their judgmental self-righteousness, but secretly angry, I think, because they didn't think of it first. (laughs) How come we didn't get our moms to come and do this? You see what Jesus is saying is like, it's like taking the new wine that I came to bring and you're trying to shove it into old wineskins. The disciples didn't understand the radicalness of Jesus' teaching. Not only to good, do good to others, but to have a changed heart that enables you to do that good from the right place of genuine service that brings glory to God with no hidden agenda. That is the only acceptable service that gives glory to God. Jesus doesn't dodge the truth diplomatically and say, well, Mrs. Zebedee, let me see what I can do about it, you know? I'll talk to the the father, you know? Or he doesn't say, "Ah, yeah, it's kind of awkward. But it's just a mother's love, so her heart's in the right place. He doesn't do that. Instead, he speaks truth and love. And he calls all of them out on what they're doing. But he does it with this amazing gentleness, pointing to his own example and says, look at the cross. Look at the cross and what I'm about to do for you to understand what service in my kingdom really looks like. I think we have to get to this place where we go, this is overwhelming. Like, you know, I think I can on my better days be that Amy, that waitress at the restaurant. But if you're asking me to let go of all my hidden agenda and do nothing out of ego and not try to grandstand and show off what I'm doing, I go, I don't think I'm capable of that. And it's not until you come to that realization that you really begin to understand the gospel. Because you cannot do this by human effort and will yourself into this type of life. It has to be an act of God visited on you. And so that's why Jesus points to the cross. Because that's where we have to start, at the foot of the cross. It's only when we have received the kind of love that is on display in the cross that we truly are set free to love others unconditionally and not play these games of trying to get ahead and show off and be the person with status and, and that we can really genuinely be free to love others freely, selflessly, in a God-honoring way. It is the radical love that God offers us to say, I have seen you at your worst and I accept you because of what Christ has done. That enables us to quit playing those games of ego and truly serving others. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ 
than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. And that was the love that was displayed on the cross of Christ. I love you unconditionally. You don't have anything to prove. Your status is found only in my love for you. And so if we truly want to learn how to serve others, the place to start is at the foot of the cross. To be so overwhelmed by God's mercy and love toward us that we end up naturally sharing that same love and mercy toward others. Let's pray. I think it's a fair statement to say that there is nothing more difficult than to try to follow the teachings of Christ through human effort. And there's these undeniable commands in the Gospels that come from Christ to um, put others first, to love selflessly. And I think the truth is for many of us, we find ourselves in really difficult situations where we're called to love some people that we find very hard to love. We're called to serve some people that don't really show much appreciation for the sacrifice we make. And maybe it's an unresponsive spouse in a difficult marriage. Maybe it's parents or in-laws that are overly demanding and nothing is ever good enough. I don't know. I don't know what situations you feel you face that just drain you and suck the life out of you. And, you know, what's so sad is, you know, we can just keep marching on like good soldiers for Jesus and keep trying and keep trying. And yet, as we try day by day, it's like something is dying in us little by little. And so when we talk about this idea of selfless love and of, you know, um, pouring ourselves out and and, and servanthood toward others, the place to start is, I think, where Jesus is bringing us here in Matthew 20 is a long, hard, honest look at ourselves and saying, you know, it's just not in you. It's like you're trying to put new wine into old wineskins and it doesn't work that way, you know, unless the very core of what's inside you changes. You cannot be this person that you're called to be. And you're just going to go down in frustration and anger and bitterness and resentment. But if you really understand God's love for you, and if that love touches you in an experiential way, I guarantee you this, you will never be the same. And love will flow out of you because you understand the love that you have received. And There won't be any hidden agendas or games you play to try to draw attention to yourself 
for the sacrifices you make. The singular testimony that will emerge out of your life is, I stand as one who was once condemned, but now forgiven. I stand as one who was once under judgment, but am now free. And in that freedom, overwhelmed by that love that God has shown me, I love others. That is the testimony of service in the kingdom of God. So can I just invite you for a minute or two here just to come before God? And maybe, again, the place to start is not by committing anything to God about trying harder or being better. It's just simply a prayer that says, help me to see myself honestly for all that I am so that out of that confession, I can encounter, like that immoral woman that wept at your feet, the grace of Jesus Christ and the fullness of of what I need in my life. And consumed by that love and his mercy for us, I pray that what would flow out of you is mercy and love toward others. We just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response. Let's pray. 